Okay, and back to the sermon. Um, so the title of this sermon is King's Quest. Now, I'm pretty geriatric compared to all of you. Did any of you ever play this series of games by Sierra? So it's King's Quest, Police Quest and Space Quest were like the earliest adventure games. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so they've been well and truly surpassed now, right? Um, but... When I was about 10, so probably about 1984 this came out, I loved these games. <laughs> that can't be right, I must have been eight. But anyway, I was very young um, in the early 1980s. Um, Space Quest particularly is very funny. I still think it's funny because it's my sense of humour. Um, and so my brother and I were very nerdy, but not all that practical. And we didn't figure out for a really long time that you could save the game. So every time we died, we'd have to go right back to the start of the game and play it all the way through to whatever problem we'd failed to solve. And often we died again. And in my recollection, we used to play for like 45 minutes to an hour to get to the problem point over and over because we wanted to complete these quests that much. And in these games, like in the modern ones, I imagine, um, objects really mattered. So sometimes a tree was a tree... But sometimes when you encountered a tree, it had a tool you could take or information you needed to solve a problem later in the quest. And you just didn't know. So you had to interact with every single thing you came across. And you'd go from screen to screen. I think it's probably like any game. And over and over, you found yourself in new and unfamiliar situations and you had to figure out how to deal with each one. And you kept encountering strange people or dwarves or ogres or spiders. And it wasn't always clear if they were on your side or not. Matthew 2, to my mind, also describes a quest. There's an object that gave information, which is the star, and an encounter with a king who seems helpful but who is tricksy and not to be trusted and has murderous intent. There is treasure and magicians and secret meetings and corrupted religious leaders and clues and ancient prophecies, and a baby who seems like a commoner but who is in fact born to be king. These tropes also sound like, well, pretty well all our fantasy stories and films, right? Or to be fairer, our adventure games and fantasy stories sound like this, which is much older. And I think this is because it's like life and it captures something of what it is like to live well in this world we find ourselves in. I am on a much more tedious quest at the moment, so Celia's quest, you could say, and it's just like Frodo in Lord of the Rings, if instead of throwing the one ring into Mount Doom, Frodo had to find the one true mattress. And I'm supposed to be not here. I'm supposed to be in Alice Springs. I'm here because I've got this terrible back condition. I spend half the day lying in bed, so the mattress really matters. I can only survive if I have the right one. They've stopped making it, and so far I can't find another one. And I'm in the middle of this current quest, which is usually left out when you tell the story because it isn't that interesting to other people or me. But there are interesting bits. Last week I was at Jinhar and Roy's trying their mattress and came across this. And I just like the label that said large trucks and dragons as something together in one drawer. And that's food they made for me while I was lying on the mattress because Roy and Jinhar. Um, and also while I was there, a rock tumbler was in operation and these were inside it. And we'll come back to those later too. So back to the reading. In today's reading, these three people, and um, Matthew never says they're kings, he calls them magi, which is more like magician than kings, set out for who knows where. And it seems likely it was a really long journey. Um, Herod pumps them for information. 
about when they first saw the star, and then he kills babies aged two and down, we find out later. So it seems likely their journey was for over a year. This is in stark contrast to King Herod and the corrupted religious leaders. They have all the same information about the birth of the promised Messiah in the end, but they can't be faffed to trek the 9.5 kilometres from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see for themselves. And in Matthew 2, it's the God folk who are on the move. Later, Jesus' family picks up and flees to Egypt based entirely on an angel's message in a dream. I think Jesus himself, when he's older, has this same on-the-move quality. So in the gospel stories, he's characteristically passing by or crossing over. And when he encounters people, he frequently says, follow me. Some leave everything behind to head off who knows where based on one conversation. In Hebrew scripture too, God is characteristically moving. So when Moses asks to see God in Exodus 34, he experiences God moving um, as God passes by the face of a cave. And I think this is because God's not static. There is a sense that God is like crackling life and it's, you know, with us, we're filled to the brim and flowing over, but it's also extending forward into the future and into eternity. And so if we choose to be gods, we're drawn into this energetic and forward-flowing life of God. And so I think following Jesus is a quest, by definition. And there's a posture that I think about as characteristic of this, um, which is sort of standing sort of with a slight forward lean, sort of looking up and forward. And I think the whole of Hebrew scripture exemplifies this because there's this covenant promise, but it's sort of slightly forward and everyone's looking to the Christ that is to come. But even after Jesus came, I think the book of Hebrews also has this feeling of being stretched a bit forward and up towards Christ in heaven, looking forward to the full realisation of the kingdom to come. And I think quests are exciting. I'm easily bored, so I like a quest. But they're not easy, and this slight forward lean is pulling us forward into a future which we can't know, let alone control. And any quest has a huge amount of not knowing, which I don't like. (laughs) Um, So the Magi left behind their home, their things, their people, their religion, it turned out, and set out without actually knowing where they were heading to. And I think as we step out to follow Jesus, we too will continually encounter new people and situations and problems well beyond our current knowledge of what the rules are or what is what or how it's supposed to work. We're not really told how it was for these Magi, but there's a famous poem that I really like by T.S. Eliot called The Journey of the Magi, and he imagines it. I'm just going to read the start for you, but if you like it, it's all over the internet, read by many famous people. But this is the start of um, the journey of the Magi. I think I've got a... A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of the year for a journey and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. 
At the end, we prefer to travel all night, sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in our ears saying that this was all folly. And it keeps going. But quests are difficult. And I've been... I hate this mattress quest. It's tedious, but it's also stressful. And my sister came with me to a factory in Keysborough and I decided there were four stages to this quest. And because she's a Latin expert, I got her to translate them into Latin for me because that cheered me up. And these are my four stages of a quest I've just made up. And they're humilior, fortior, excelsior, vittoria. <laughs> That's probably wrong. <laughs> and so humilior is like this, fortior is like this, excelsior is when you look up, and then vittoria, which I haven't got to, is when you, like, win. Um, and humilior is more humble. <laughs> I think... These are required for all quests and you do need great humility to let go of things and plans and what you can know and understand to follow God. And I'm a perfectionist and um, I've realised that I particularly go wrong in two ways here. One way is I hate the whole quest and I get really passive and I just want God to fix it for me while I do nothing. So I just sort of sit there being whingy. And the other way is I'm too messianic and controlling so I want to do something but I want it to solve everything all at once. (laughs) Um, so I'm either avoidant or messianic. Um, the Magi do something different. Day after day, they step out doing the next right thing, which is necessary but not sufficient. And I think this is a humble way to be, and I'm trying to be more like this. I think we also need humility because God is found in humble places. So the Magi follow the star away from their grand country, but also away from Jerusalem, which is the centre of power and from the most important people, to what was probably a suburban backwater house with a couple of dodgy repute, because she was pregnant out of wedlock, after all. Fortior, more brave or strong. (laughs) So I think in diagrams a lot. So I have this idea um, that there's like a line and an arrow, and you have to keep crossing this line with this arrow to do anything real or follow God, but it's hard. It's sort of stepping beyond what you know to what you don't know, and there's a cost every time. And for me, following God has a lot of this, this sort of crossing of lines and stepping into the unknown. And it can be like travelling in space, but it can also be moving across to different sorts of people or different ideas. As you get older, it's actually quite hard to move down the generations. I didn't know that when I was young, (laughs) because it's a different world. (laughs) And so you keep having to step into these situations that are strange and you don't know how to navigate them. And for me, it takes courage every time. And there's another sort of courage, which I think is a bit undervalued but um, in our current age, but following God requires perseverance and it takes huge courage to live out what Nietzsche calls a long obedience in the same direction like the wise men did. Third one, excelsior, is higher. <laughs> and so the Magi over and over looked up and saw this star and went towards it. So they held to this living word to them, follow the star. The star itself was a sign and like a weapon against despair, the temptation to give up or to switch to other, maybe much more sensible ways of knowing. A star shines only when it's dark and maybe in dark night times we need especially to look up. I don't understand in this story why the Magi went to Herod at all. Did they lose sight of the star? (laughs) Did they need help at this point? Was it some sort of a test for Herod and the leaders? Or was it just a mistake where they had a bit of a wobble and went somewhere important that caused the death of many babies? I don't know. I do think the temptation to give up is the most compelling just before the end. 
And I think in any sort of quest, you have to do these three things over and over and over before there's any chance of any sort of Wittoria. Um, and actually, much as I hate the difficulty of it, I think it's necessary. So I don't think this would have been a better story if the Magi could have just sort of magicked straight to the house. I think journeys do things, and one of those things is to change us. It's not very easy to recognise Christ hidden in the common life of the world. He's not where we expect, and he may well not be saying what we think he's going to or what we want him to. And sometimes I think of it as a sort of long, slow sanding process, which may feel like a waste of time, but it's almost sanding scales away from our eyes, and it means eventually we can see. And this brings me to victory. So Victoria, this is a statue I found hidden in the stable in Alice Springs, actually, which gave me a great amount of joy. Um, So I have not got here on the mattress front, but the Magi did get to the end of their quest. But was... What was victory exactly here? And the end point of all this was to give presence to and worship Christ. So it wasn't for their own health or financial security or achieving power or respect or family or really any of the goals that we might usually think of as goals. It wasn't really for themselves at all. And I think that's how it is. So the kingdom's all around us. God is really present in our world but we need eyes to see it. And I don't think we can see it while we want it for our own purposes. And there's a quote I like. um, This is from Wendell Berry, who's sort of a poet, but this is from a novel he wrote. (laughs) And it says, "There's a book. this is a book about heaven. I know it now. It floats among us like a cloud and is the realest thing we know and the least to be captured, the least to be possessed by anybody for himself. It's like a grain of mustard seed, which you cannot see among the crumbs of earth where it lies. It's like the reflection of the trees on the water. And that's the error. (laughs) And this is not because God is mean or tricksy, but because anything we can take and turn to our own ends isn't, in fact, God. And we can try very hard to use religious tools and techniques to manipulate God to our own ends, which I've tried pretty hard to do, I think this is the bad sort of magic. (laughs) I think we all have mixed motives, and I've done a fair bit of all this in my time. Um, I've come to God with many mixed motives, and I think that's perfectly okay. Part of the quest is slowly becoming aware of that and letting God sort that out in us, purifying us so that in the end we can see God. In the end, the star wasn't the point of this quest, and we don't hear any more about it. It's no longer needed because it's done its work. And the Magi's quest wasn't for the usual sort of treasure, gold and precious ointments. They gave those away at the end. I think many of us are thwarted on our God quests when we turn the things God gives us to help into the end in itself. So we end up worshipping the star or the treasure, which is very tempting, um, but I think is idolatry. Because the goal in the end is to come into the presence of the living God who is more compelling than anything we might have to give up to do this. Um, They end up worshipping, and I love that we started this service worshipping. Those songs got, like, switched in right at the end. I was like, yes. (laughs) Um, And because I think seen truly, worship is a crazy, wild, powerful thing. It's joining in with what the cherubim do in Revelation 4, all creation together, covered in eyes, singing songs of praise to God present in their midst. And... 
after they've done the worship and given the presents and gone, this is the end of the story of the Magi as we know it, but it isn't the end of it for them. If God is a baby in the backwaters of Judea, then life is not the same as it was before. It's going to take a lot of humilior and fortior and excelsior ongoing to follow this sort of a God. But their journeys had other effects too. They left behind this story like a snail leaves behind a silvery trail and it's being sung and told for thousands of years and we get to spend time with it in a far-off place and time today. And they couldn't possibly have known that, but in the God economy, following him is never wasted. It's much more fruitful than any goal you could set yourself. My quest isn't really for a mattress. That's just one of many problems on the way. Um, For me, like for all of us, my quest is a quest for God. And I think sometimes the movement in that sort of quest is physical. You've got to move if he says you move. But sometimes we stay in one spot and it's a different sort of movement. And each time we pray, I think prayer itself is its own sort of quest. And I have a quote about this um, from a guy called Charles de Foucault, who was a, a monk... Um, who ended up leaving everything to live with the poor um, on the same level. So he gave away all his money and wealth. And he has um, um, brothers and sisters who follow him do the same. There's two nuns in Central Australia who went to live with Aboriginal folk, like, with nothing, um, and have been there for 60 years. And so it's an extraordinary way of being. But this is something he wrote to his 10-year-old nephew when his nephew told him that he wanted to join the Navy. And I really liked it. My dearest, if you want to be a sailor, you must like long journeys, faraway journeys. You must therefore have a lively taste for prayer, which in only one instant leads you so far, so high. No sailboat or steamliner will ever lead you as far as a minute of prayer. The journeys of our soul to reap to God reach further than any ocean, and while the discoveries sailors make are limited, as is this globe, The discoveries made by the soul as it rises through prayer to God have no boundaries because God is infinite. The spaces that separate the creature from the creator are vaster than the sea and there is matter for longer journeys. And the discoveries one makes are always more enchanting because everything we glimpse of God is divinely beautiful. There are more mysteries in the little tabernacle than there are on the bottom of the ocean floor or surface of the earth and more beauty than in the whole of creation. A recluse goes on wonderful journeys way beyond the earth while staying deep in his hermitage. Centuries ago, he found the hot air balloon and the means for rising up above the atmosphere and beyond the stars. And it takes a while to form a habit of prayer, but once you form the habit of it, it's absolutely wonderful. (laughs) And this means a lot to me because I'm quite limited. Um, So I stopped being able to do physical adventures and my adventure is much more in the realm of prayer and ideas. And I think this is true. So it's worth the pain of establishing a routine and putting the time in. And we do pray because it's wonderful once you get a taste of it like this. But we also pray because we need guidance. We don't know where we're going and quests are dangerous. When you set off on an adventure, you expect to meet dragons. And those who are trying to thwart us don't always look like what they are. Herod is a classic of his type, just like the snake in the tree, silver-tongued and clever, and to all appearances, just trying to help. And the Magi needed a dream to tell them what he really was. There's much that's tricksy and trappy in our world that would entangle us and pull us off the path. In Matthew 2, guidance comes from nature, in the form of a star, information from Hebrew scripture, a vision and an angel in a dream. 
And I myself believe God still guides through all of these and in other ways too. And it's particular to particular people, so you can't really tell someone how God's going to guide them. I also think that now, as as then, these different things work together. So, Scripture says the promised king will come in Bethlehem, but it's the appearance of the star that announces the time, and it's the star that gives the precise location. And to me, this is how it is. Paying attention to nature and the world and round in combination with scripture is still immensely powerful. And probably the main thing this group streams in the desert I'm part of does is read scripture in place, particularly outdoors. So we often go to that waterhole and read a few chapters and then spend a couple of hours with it quietly and then all come back and just say honestly whatever the Bible has said to us. And that sounds so simple, but it has been just astonishingly powerful thing actually it's been the most powerful thing over the last few years for for this group and I've given you a quote um, this is one of the places I walk every morning um, it's one of my God places where I do scripture scripture in nature but um, listening in a quiet place lets me see and for me this has been so The desert fathers and mothers who are ancient Christians who left the cities to live in the deserts, um, who mean a lot to me, had a tradition that you ask God for a particular word and then you wait till it comes and it could come through people or scripture or nature or who knows how. And once you recognise it as your word, you carry it forward with you. It guides you like a star, you could say. And you might already do this, but if you don't, you might want to choose to ask God for such a word. But in any case, I encourage you in 2024 to continue to take time to pay attention to God, to nature, to scripture, to dreams and visions if you have them, and to follow the living word as you're given it. This is all much easier with companions on the way, which is to say church. But Christian community is really hard. (laughs) And I think it's a bit like um, Roy and Jinha's stone tumbler. When you're all together, you hit up against each other over and over and over and over. And the longer you spend with people and the more seriously you try and do Christian community, the more conflict and trouble arises. And in the end, it bumps off all your rough edges and your pointy bits and it forms each of us into treasure in the end. (laughs) And I wanted to end with a picture of Rose Rocks. This is what they turned out like. And to pray a blessing on you all. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And I'm going to end with a song. This song's meant a lot to me. And um, it's just to give you time to you can listen to the song, read the words, just think if that's what you feel like doing or pray. Um, in the song, Baltazar is the name of one of the Magi, which came in the legends after. So it doesn't appear in the Bible, but later they... Um, were given names, so Baltasar is one of the Magi, and it does say they journeyed for seven years, and I have no idea where he got that from, and I think he made it up, so I'd just like to say that. Um, Thank you.